All right. Well, I will invite you all to come in. We, again, don't have a countdown because uh, it's kind of how the morning has been. Uh, our countdown machine broke. <laughs> so we are going to do it this way. So I'm going to invite you to grab uh, your drinks and come on in as we get ready to uh, start a new series this morning, which is super exciting. All right, well, my name's Mike. I'm the youth pastor here at Jericho, and uh, I'm excited to be kicking off our series this summer. Uh, Every summer, we've been going through a book of the Old Testament or an Old Testament character, and I'm very excited for it because I... I've developed just a real love for the Old Testament through my studies uh, at Columbia Bible College, and I just really love digging in and learning about the character of God from the Old Testament. Even though it's the Old Testament, it seems kind of new to me and I'm sure to a lot of people because we spend a whole lot of time in the New Testament and tend not to spend a whole lot of time in the Old Testament. So there's some amazing little things that can pop up, which I'm excited to talk about uh, this summer. So it's kind of going through a brief overview of uh, the last few summers here at Jericho as we've been going through uh, Old Testament books. We started at the very beginning, which is always a great place to start, in Genesis, talking about beginnings, history, mystery, theology, all exciting words. Uh, And we talked about that. And there's so much that happens in Genesis. You have creation, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Lots of stories through Genesis, and so that is where we began before we started moving into Exodus and a little bit of Joshua in there as well, uh, talking about Moses and how Moses leads Israel out of Egypt from slavery uh, into the wilderness where they wander for 40 years. Then Joshua takes over and leads them into the promised land. And then from Exodus, we jumped all the way up into 1 Samuel where Israel's monarchy is established, King Saul comes to power and then falls from grace as this young upstart named David serves under him and becomes anointed as king while still serving King Saul. And then we moved into 2 Samuel next summer, which I know a little bit more about because that's when Caitlin and I joined Jericho and we looked more at David as he is finally fully established as king and leads Israel and we look at his reign and then until he passes away. Uh, and then in the next summer, we jumped into First Kings, a little bit of Second uh, uh, Samuel as we looked at um, David's son Solomon. Through the lens of wisdom, Solomon, as very young, came to power at age 12 uh, and asked for God to give him wisdom in order to lead his people. And so he is very wise, becomes a great ruler, really wealthy. But then, ironically, as he gets older, he gets a little more unwise. And he takes many wives and concubines from foreign nations and introduces uh, idol worship into Israel. And now we're going to move in. We're staying in First Kings. And we're going to look at the story of Elijah, the prophet of God and his bold faith. And a special thank you to Josh Groom for designing our uh, series graphics here. And he did a great job uh, with that. So thank you to Josh for this graphic as we're going to look at Elijah. Yes, that deserves a round of applause. Excellent. So Elijah is a prophet speaking to uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. So let's give you a little bit of background context as to what is happening 
as Solomon passes away because of his idol worship and his oppressive policies over the people, Israel ends up splitting into two kingdoms. In the north, we have the kingdom of Israel, and in the south, we have the kingdom of Judah. And in Judah, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes over and becomes king. And in the north, we have a man by the name of Jeroboam who becomes king. And we're going to focus more on the north because that is where Elijah speaks. And now Jeroboam has a little bit of a problem. See, the temple to God where you have to go and offer your sacrifices and worship Yahweh, God of Israel, is in Jerusalem, which is in the southern kingdom. And that's the only place where you can offer your sacrifices. So the people in the north would have to keep traveling into Judah, into Jerusalem, to offer their sacrifices and worship God. And eventually, they might just decide to stay there because it's easier. They might think, why the heck are we split into two nations? We should just reunite. And that doesn't work for Jeroboam because if they reunite, then he's not a king anymore because it's David's line that is, needs to be the king down there. So he comes up with a solution. He makes two golden calves. And he says, look, Israel, here are the gods who took you out of Egypt. And they start worshiping these calves. Does this sound familiar to anyone? In Exodus, when Moses leads the people into the wilderness, he goes up onto the mountain to meet with God. The people get anxious and worried and say to Aaron, the priest, hey, make us some gods. Moses ain't coming back. We need someone to worship. So Aaron takes all their gold and makes a golden calf and says, look, Israel, this is the God that leads you out of worship. And they all bow down and worship this golden calf. And now Jeroboam has done the same thing. He makes two golden calves. He takes one and puts it in the city of Bethel, which is right on the border of Judah and um, Israel, so at most south of Israel. He takes the other one, he puts it in Dan, which is at the very north of Israel, for the people to go and worship. So what Jeroboam does is he introduces idol worship into Israel right at the beginning, and it becomes known as the sin of Jeroboam. And if you read the book of Kings throughout, you see uh, every Israel king, it says they fell into the sin of Jeroboam. Basically, they supported and introduced more and more idol worship in Israel. And this became the sin of Jeroboam. And all the kings in book of Kings are judged on their religious policies, their relationship with God. And in Israel's case, every single one of them were considered bad, evil kings because of this sin of Jeroboam. So the king in our series this summer is King Ahab. He is Israel's eighth king and in, introduced in 1 Kings this way. Ahab, son of Omri, began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of the king Asa's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria, which is their capital city, 22 years. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. So Ahab may have been the eighth king in chronology, eighth king in order, but he was number one in evilness and did more evil than any of the kings before him. And we're going to see that throughout our series. But Ahab's introduction doesn't end there. It continues. And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, there's your sin of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians. And he began to bow down in worship of Baal. And then he set up an Asherah pole, which is where they would worship Baal. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the kings of Israel before him. 
So he's the eighth king in chronology, number one king in evil, and ticked off God more than any other king before him. It's a great start for Ahab. And that's all right up front in his introduction. And his wickedness is quite rooted in whom he marries in Jezebel, who is the daughter of King Ethbaal, who would have also been the head priest of the god Baal. And so she is the mastermind behind, she's the pants, the one who wears the pants in the marriage, and is the mastermind behind spreading Baal worship throughout Israel. And as I said earlier, every king in the book of Kings is judged by their religious policies. So King Ahab, by everything that we would judge a king or a prime minister or a president today, was actually very successful. Israel had a strong military, their borders were secure, they were at peace, they were, he was really good with economics, they were quite a wealthy nation. Most of it he just took over from his father who did really well in those areas, but he kept it going. He was quite a successful king in those regards. Israel's on the map and was considered successful. But Kings calls, the book of Kings calls him a bad and wicked king because it doesn't care about any of those things. It cares about his relationship with God. And in that, he was an utter failure as he bows down in worship to Baal. So right after the introduction of King Ahab and Jezebel, the book of Kings breaks from its usual formula. You read the book of Kings, it's always, this is king so-and-so, they reigned this many years, and they were either a good king or a bad king, doing evil or good in the eyes of the Lord. In the case of Israel, it's always, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. King king so-and-so, he reigned this many years, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is king so-and-so, they reigned this many years, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then all of a sudden, we come to Elijah, who interrupts this formula and breaks in with a narrative. And it's quite symbolic of who Elijah is himself. Scholar, uh, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says this, Elijah is an interruption. Elijah is a towering figure, a new Moses, who bursts upon the scene from outside the normal channels and confronts power structures in uncompromising terms. Elijah himself is an interruption. He just interrupts all of Ahab's and Jezebel's plans, the way of life that Israel is going in worship of Baal. Elijah just bursts in and interrupts everything, just like he does in the book of Kings. And so the interruption starts with Elijah's introduction into the book. Uh, and that is where we are going to read this morning in our passage. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps or anything that has a Bible on it, and you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 17, uh, where I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. And if you don't have Bibles, then it will be up on the screen as we're doing 1 Kings 17, 1 to, uh, verse 1 to 7. Now Elijah, who is from Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go to the east and hide by Kareth Brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him and camped beside Kareth Brook east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. But after a while, the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. So we have the introduction of King Ahab and Jezebel in chapter 16, and now of Elijah in chapter 17 here. And it's setting up this epic battle that we're going to go through through this summer. 
And it resembles much the battle that happened in Exodus. In Exodus, you have on one side Yahweh, the God of Israel, and his servant Moses. And they're going head to head with Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And in this battle, we again have Yahweh, God of Israel, and his servant Elijah. And he's facing off against Jezebel, King Ahab, and their god Baal. So we're going to look at the tale of the tape. First, we have the god Baal. He has the head of a bull and the body of a man. Yeah, there you go. Close enough. As close as you can get. His worshippers believed that he was the god of thunder, fertility, agriculture, and rain. He can make it rain. Basically, he was in control of life and death. When you have uh, a culture that's completely dependent upon the crops and the rain to make their food, and he's also in charge of fertility, he is in charge of life and death. Because rain uh equals life. But Paul House explains it this way. He says... Baal worshippers believed their storm god made rain. Actually, I'm going to spray it over here because Walter's over there. Uh, made rain. Unless, of course, it was dry season when he needed to be brought back from the dead. So if there was no rain, there was a drought, much as we have in BC every summer causing fires, it means that Baal was dead until he brought back to life again and he could make it rain again. All right. And in the other corner, we have Yahweh, the God of Israel, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in Elijah's introduction, as he makes this speech about Yahweh, we can see it's directly countering everything that they believed about Baal. Elijah's first, uh, the first thing is quite obvious. He says, uh, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. So he's saying, you think Baal controls the rain? Baal doesn't control the rain. Yahweh controls the rain. And you know what? There's not going to be any rain or dew for the next few years because Yahweh is in control of the rain, not Baal. And the more subtle counter is at the beginning of his speech. He says, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. When there's a drought, when there's no rain, it means that Baal is dead. And so Yahweh is going to make sure that there is no rain or dew on the land, showing that Yahweh, or Yahweh, Yahweh is alive, but Baal is dead. He does not exist. By creating a drought that will last years, Baal is dead. Paul House summarizes it all nicely this way. To refute this belief, Baal's, the belief being Baal's control over the rain, Elijah states that Yahweh is the one who determines when the rain falls, that Yahweh lives at all times, and that Yahweh is not afraid to challenge Baal on what his worshippers consider his home ground, which is making it rain or making it not rain. So this is the battle that we're going to see going on. Yahweh versus Baal. And Yahweh has taken the first move by making it not rain. So now after Elijah gives this message, 
God tells him to go to the Kareth brook and hide. And here we can see some parallels with uh, John the Baptist in our New Testament. John the Baptist is often considered the second coming of Elijah, and this is a big reason why. Elijah runs off, he hides over in the brook of Kareth. He's from Tishbe, which is more of a rural company, or a company, a city uh, outside of Samaria, and now he's up in the wilderness in the Jordan by the brook of Kareth, just like John the Baptist preached and baptized people from the wilderness outside of the big cities, and there is where he operated. John the Baptist also lived out there eating locusts with honey, which is kind of an odd uh, snack to have, uh, and he wore camel clothing, which is just as weird to wear back then as it would be today. Uh, so he's a little bit of a strange dude. And Elijah himself has an interesting way of getting food, as we will see uh, in a little bit here. So basically, Elijah goes way out in the wilderness, and he goes camping uh, out there. Do you, everyone like camping? You're all from BC. You probably all love camping. No, Tammy doesn't. Well, I've got this lovely tent set up, so uh, if any kids would like to come camping and sit in the tent, this would be a, a good time to come join Elijah. Though I don't see a lot of kids. I think a lot of them went upstairs. But you can come chill out in the, the tent. No, you're by yourself, so you don't want to. All right. Well, that option is there. So Elijah goes camping in the tent. So... Uh, there's, two there's a practical reason and a symbolic reason why God sends Elijah to go camping. And to understand these reasons, you need to know this, that since Elijah is a prophet or spokesperson of God, Elijah pretty much equals God. Where Elijah's presence is, that represents God's presence. So that is what we need to understand to be able to get these reasons. Elijah basically equals God. So Frank Gabelin says this, To impress the message and its deep spiritual implications further on Ahab and all Israel, God sent Elijah into seclusion. Not only would Ahab's frantic search for the prophet be thwarted, but Elijah's very absence would be living testimony of divine displeasure. So there, Frank gives the two reasons, the practical and the symbolic reasons. So let's break it down a little bit. The practical reason is uh, actually twofold. The first one is, uh, as we'll see later in the series, Jezebel doesn't like being crossed and tends to have this habit of trying to kill people who get in her way. So Elijah confronting her god Baal and saying that Baal is dead probably didn't make her very happy, and so he has to escape and go camping so he doesn't get killed. Very practical reason to go camping. Uh, the other practical reason is so that the people would not constantly pester him to make it rain. Because Elijah is the one who actually has the power to make it rain. When he says his speech, he says, There will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. The I refers to Elijah. It doesn't refer to Yahweh. Elijah can make it rain because God has equipped him with the ability to make it rain. So now he's got to go camping because after a few weeks uh, of it not raining, when you're trying to grow crops, you get a little worried and you'd probably do anything to try to beg and pester and bribe that person to make it rain who has the power to do so. 
And so Elijah must go hide in case he gets so annoyed that he makes it rain before God wants it to. That's the practical reason. The symbolic reason that Elijah is now camping is because uh, of God's own displeasure with Israel. When Elijah's presence equals God's presence, Elijah now goes camping. It's like God has gone camping away from Israel as well. God needs a little bit of a break from those unfaithful Baal-worshipping Israelites. And to show how displeased he is, he symbolically goes camping with Elijah, leaving them in the drought. And so Elijah does exactly what God told him to do. He camped beside Kareth Brook, east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. So Elijah has quite the miraculous camping trip. God is providing Elijah with everything he needs from creation. He drinks straight from the brook in the river when there's no rain in the land and people can't have water. Elijah still has water from the brook. And God uses ravens to bring him bread and meat. When there's no food in the land because there's no rain to grow crops, Elijah still gets food from these ravens. It's quite the miraculous camping trip. And these two are going to get a miraculous visit, I believe. Uh, I think there might be at least a raven or two that's going to bring a little bit of treats here. And I made so many candy bakes because I thought there was going to be a lot uh, of kids. You might as well just kind of toss those out to people as well if you want some gummies. Walter really... I, there you go. Walter wants gummies because I sprayed him a little bit. Some water. <laughs> this is the heads up. Oh, right in the face. All right. So there's your miraculous ravings, brings food. Thank you. Thank you, ravens. Excellent. So that's the story of Elijah's camping trip. He comes and he confronts the power structure of King Ahab coming out of Tishbe, tells him it's not going to rain anymore, that Baal is dead, and then retreats into the wilderness to really nail home the point that Baal is dead and Yahweh is the God that they need to serve. So what are our takeaways from, uh, from Elijah's camping trip? The first one is uh, trust in God. Ahab decided to trust in Baal to make it rain and to bring food and bring life. And God says through Elijah, nah, if you want to trust Baal for rain, guess what? There's not going to be any rain. It's God who's in control of life and death and not the things that we often view as in control of life and death. Money isn't in control of our life or death. God is, so don't put your trust in the money that you gather. Knowledge isn't in control of our life or our death. Knowledge isn't in control of our salvation or our death. God is, so don't put trust in your knowledge. 
And our actions aren't in control of our life or death because God is. So don't put your trust in your good deeds. None of those things are bad things. But when they take the place of God as controller of your life and of your death, then they become wicked and evil things. God is in control of life and death. And you know what he did? He decided the heck with death. And he sent his son Jesus to the earth to show what it looks like to live a life that trusts wholly in God, to die on the cross and only in three days later to be raised again to defeat death so that when he comes for the second time, death will be finally utterly defeated and all those who have put their trust in God and in his son Jesus will be raised from the dead. And when death goes permanently away, so does death's friends, grief, sorrow, and pain. So put your trust in God who has the power to make rain stop or to make it rain, who has the power to send ravens with bread and meat for Elijah to eat. Yes, that rhymed. That was on purpose. Makes it easier to remember. Bread and meat for Elijah to eat. And put your trust in the God who has the power to defeat death. Trust in God. The second takeaway is spiritual responsibility. Back in Deuteronomy, there were simple guidelines for the king. Don't be greedy by taking too much money or horses or uh, taking too many wives and do your homework. Yes, kings had homework. And their homework was this. When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instructions on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way, he will learn to fear the Lord, his God, by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. The king's homework was to sit down and write out by hand, because they didn't have computers, uh, the book of Deuteronomy. And once he finished that, writing that down, he was to read it from front to back every single day. He was to be steeped in God's word. And the purpose of doing this wasn't just so that he wouldn't fall into idol worship or that he would have an own good personal relationship with God, but because he was the king of the people and he had a spiritual responsibility to them. When he was steeped in the word of God, he would be able to lead his people in relationship with God. And Israel and Judah's relation, or, uh, fate is all tied up with the king's relationship with God. And we see that even throughout the Old Testament. Israel splits into two, into Israel and Judah, because of Solomon's unfaithfulness and worshiping other gods because of his many wives. Later on, Israel is going to get conquered and taken over and sent into exile by Assyria in the north because of the constant bad kings who keep introducing and escalating idol worship. And eventually the southern kingdom of Judah, about a century and a half later, will have the same thing happen to them because of their bad kings bringing in idol worship. They will get conquered and taken into exile in Babylon. And the book of Kings is very adamant that it's because of the kings and their lack of a relationship with Yahweh, deciding to worship idols instead.
the kings are to lead the people in following the laws of Yahweh. And yet Ahab and all of Israel's kings shirk this responsibility and worship idols instead, sealing the fate of Israel. And the nation suffers. So how are you fulfilling the spiritual responsibility you have? How are you filling that responsibility to your kids in leading them? To your spouse? To your unbelieving friends and neighbors and co-workers and school classmates? We all have a spiritual responsibility that's been given to us. Are we steeped in God's word, following his will so that those who are following us will be following along as well? Are we trusting in God or in idols? Trust in God. Fulfill your spiritual responsibility. Our passage ends with, but after a while the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. And so this morning we're ending on that cliffhanger. What's Elijah going to do? You will have to wait until next week to see what happens, or you could read ahead. There's also that option. Uh, And now the uh, worship band is going to come up and lead us in worship. We're going to have prayer response people on the sides uh, to lead you in prayer. Maybe you haven't put your trust fully in God. These prayer response team is there to help guide you through that. Maybe you don't know what your spiritual responsibility is. The prayer team is there to help discern help you discern and bring that before God, asking for guidance. Or maybe there's just something going on in your life that you need to commit to God. We had a few things already with uh, Anita and her surgery and Peter in hospital. Maybe there's things in your own life that you need to bring before God. The prayer response team, Gary and Betty over here, and Katie and myself uh, will be on the sides here to pray for you. Mm -hmm.